Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Landon. The tune you're hearing is a protest song against the late Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister who introduced tough new economic policies in Britain after her election in 1979. Maggie, you took my milk and you took my daddy's job, the singer complains, a reference to the fact that Margaret Thatcher was the first leader in the English-speaking democracies to embrace neoliberalism. Thatcher stirred up controversy when her government cut a free school milk program. Neoliberal policies include scaling back government involvement in the economy, curtailing spending on social programs, and abandoning tariff protections in favor of free trade. Thatcher took on the powerful British labor unions and also presided over the sale of more than 50 state-owned enterprises to private owners. According to the new book, Constructing Neoliberalism, Economic Transformation in Anglo-American Democracies, Thatcher's policies were a response to the economic crises of the 1970s that included high rates of unemployment and inflation coupled with rising world oil prices. The book examines the adoption of neoliberal policies in the four Anglo-American democracies, Britain, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada during the 1980s and beyond. It was written by Jonathan Swartz, Associate Professor of Political Science at Purdue University North Central. During research for the book, Professor Swartz conducted more than 110 interviews with former prime ministers and cabinet ministers in all four countries, as well as a number of high-ranking economic officials and trade union leaders. Professor Swartz argues in constructing neoliberalism that the policies represented a radical shift away from the traditional post-Second World War consensus politics. He writes that the shift was made possible because political elites, he calls them norm entrepreneurs, were able to construct new economic models that stressed market efficiency over traditional concerns about social justice. We reached Jonathan Swartz at his home in South Bend, Indiana. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. Hello, Professor Swartz. Good morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to discuss your book, uh, Constructing Neoliberalism. And let's begin with a key concept in your book, uh, what you refer to as, quote, a political economic imaginary. What do you mean by a political economic imaginary? The term political economic imaginary is one that I kind of came up with based on lots of other work that had been done on social imaginaries to refer to a set of interrelated ideas about the proper relationship between the state, the society, the economy, the citizen even, the corporation, essentially the appropriate extent and form of how the state should regulate or not regulate the state, the society, the economy. So, in other words, the political economic imaginary is a set of ideas about what the proper role of the state should be in the economy, in the society. What do people think that proper role should be? Does the state have a role at all? What should that state be? What form should those interventions, if there are interventions by the state in the so-called free economy, what role should that take? It's based on a larger set of work, and I particularly rely on the work of Castoriadis in his work on social imaginaries who basically argues that much of the world around us can only be understood properly by looking at the ideas about the world around us. That our relationships with others, our sense of what we like or don't like about the world, about what's good or bad, what's true or false, is not uh, is not given. It's not some kind of an ontological reality that we just accept, uh, but rather it's one that we largely construct ourselves as a, as a social phenomenon. And just briefly, he gives the example, and I think I have it in one of the footnotes in the book, of food and how that there's a whole range of foods out there. There's a whole range of, of things in the world that are edible, but yet we humans only eat a fairly small range of what's actually edible. And in fact, what we like or don't like varies quite a bit from one society or one culture uh, to another. So what is considered del- a delicacy in one culture is considered uh, you know, something disgusting in another. Well, functionally speaking, one 
you know, the, 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 the food stuff may be just as edible as anything else, but yet in one society, it's, 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 del it's a delicacy in another, it's disgusting. Well, why? Well, clearly it's our ideas about what we consider to be good and bad food, what we consider to be tasty or disgusting. Well, in the same way, I try to spin off of that essentially and to say, well, this political economic imaginary is that, if you will, subset of ideas about the, the role of the state in the economy and what the proper role of the state should be. Once you adopt a certain political economic imaginary, it then essentially sets out an entire range of what you can think or not think about state economic policy, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what's desirable, what's undesirable. Um, and so from my point of view, it's a useful term. Uh, it's a useful concept because it really emphasizes this, this socially constructed or this ideational nature of how, um, of how people think and how they act about economic policy. And why is that concept of a political economic imaginary important for understanding how New Zealand, Britain, Canada, and Australia came to embrace radically new economic policies in the 1980s? I think it's important because I try to emphasize a couple of things in the book. One is that the, the policy shifts that we see in the 1980s and 90s in those countries I argue, was not just a marginal policy shift. In other words, it wasn't just some tinkering with the settings of economic policy, you know, like you take a dial on a machine and you turn it from three to four. It's not some tinkering uh, with the settings, if you will. It rather represented a, a, a very significant shift in the way people thought and the way people continue to think about the proper role of the state in the economy. In other words, it's a shift in the underlying philosophy, a shift in the underlying assumptions or beliefs about how the economy should work, what the role of the state is in the economy, what the role of citizens and corporations are in the economy. So it's, in other words, it's much bigger than just shifting policy on, on one or two or three particular issues. It's, in my view, and this is what I try to argue in the book, it really was the replacing of what had been a, in Britain it was called the, the, the consensus, but it really was shared among all four countries that I talk about in the book, a set of ideas about what the proper role of the state was in the, in the immediate post-war period and, and really lasted through from the 1950s to the 1970s. It replaced that traditional consensus about what the role of the state was, which was a much more interventionist view, with a much more deregulated free market view of what the state should be. And so from my point of view, the, the idea of the imaginary helps us to really appreciate the full extent to which uh, not just a policy shift, but a truly philosophical shift took place. I guess the, the, the second thing I would, that I like about the concept is that by using the term political in political economic imaginary, I really try to emphasize the, the political aspect that this shift, and in fact the, the, the change to any imaginary or the construction of any imaginary, is a political process. We're not talking about the laws of gravity here, although perhaps they're politically debated as well. Uh, we're talking about something that's inherently contestable, something that really uh, has a particular uh, political point of view attached to it, and that when people uh, adopt one imaginary or another, they're going to engage in contestation. They're going to engage in politics. And the shift that took place from that old consensus to the new neoliberal consensus, if one wants to call it that, was not something that happened kind of in an organic natural way in the sense of it just was destined to happen and so it did rather it was the result of it was the result of political elites what in the lingo we call norm entrepreneurs who really set about trying to change what had been uh, the previous assumptions or views about what the proper role of the state was and they largely succeeded but it was a political uh, it was a political shift it, it, it was inherently political not just the result of some inexorable laws of economic science or something like that and that's why I, I, I utilize that term political in political economic imaginary to emphasize that contestation and that contestability uh, involved in the construction of social imaginaries. Now, that shift you mentioned, um, it, it involved adopting what you call neoliberalism. What is neoliberalism for you? Neoliberalism has been given a lot of different definitions, but for me, and I, I quote a kind of an extensive definition in the book, but it's certainly not the only one, and there's lots of different you know, perspectives you could take on it. But it fundamentally, at least for me, revolves around uh, an emphasis on the efficiency of the market, that the market is an efficient mechanism for the allocation of scarce resources. Um, and, it, and the neo, of course, in neoliberalism refers back to classical liberalism and Adam Smith and all the ideas about how 
the, the economy that is the most efficient is the one that's the least regulated. And this assumption that to the extent the state involves itself in the regulation of the economy, you're going to get suboptimal, inefficient outcomes. And so neoliberalism involves, among other things, this this faith or this belief in the efficiency of market outcomes, perhaps even the fairness of market outcomes, that free, if we want to extend it to the international level, that free trade is, is the natural consequence of that at the international level, that the, uh, that the state is to be a facilitator of the market. It's to be the custodian of the market. It's to create the proper conditions for the market to operate. That's its, its role. Its role is not to substitute for the market. So if there's something that the market can do, uh, the assumption is that it can and should do it and will do it efficiently and that the role of the state is to set the conditions under which the market can operate most efficiently. And one could give other examples as well. So, for example, labor market flexibility, which was such a huge issue in Britain and New Zealand, uh, deregulating the labor market and allowing the so-called free market uh, for labor to operate in the same way that you allow the free market uh, for goods and services to operate. But it, for me, it's essentially a restating of the fundamental classical liberal idea, uh, essentially that the less regulation that the state engages in, the better it is for the economy and the more efficient and more optimal outcomes the market will produce. Uh, in other words, that there's a direct relationship or an inverse relationship between the amount of state regulation and the efficiency of markets. And how does that differ from what came before? Because you say in your book that all four countries had a form of a kind of consensus politics leading up to this period of change in the 1980s. How did that consensus politics differ from the new neoliberalism? Well, the old consensus was fundamentally based on the notion that, yes, we're going to have a market economy. Yes, we're going to, you know, we're a capitalist economy. And so there's going to be, there's going to be relatively free markets. But there was a much greater skepticism in those years about the fairness, you might say, of market outcomes. That yes, perhaps untrammeled free market economics can produce efficient outcomes, but they're, all, they're going to produce unfair outcomes. They're going to produce social injustice. They're going to produce economic inequality. That the, you know, that the unregulated market uh, can't be left to its own devices, that you can't allow a, a market to be left to its own devices, that it will produce all kinds of social injustices, all kinds of of um, social outcomes that are undesirable, poverty, high unemployment, that the business cycle itself will be unmanageable, that you'll have wild swings of boom and bust, um, that mass unemployment will, will result in, de in periods of, of depression. Uh, there was this, the, in corollary to that, was this very positive view of the, that the role that the state could play in ameliorating the worst effects of free market capitalism, that the state could smooth out the business cycle that the state could be judicious in stepping on the gas or, t or, or taking its foot off the pedal uh, whenever the economy needed regulating, that the state had a positive role to play in producing social justice, um, that profit, which had come to be seen in, in a skeptical light, rather than profits going to the pockets of corporations, states could now, uh, could now own large segments of their economy and so that the profits from state-owned corporations could now go towards the people. So there was this, there was this skepticism, you might say, uh, about untrammeled free market capitalism combined with a, a faith or a, a positive view of the potential of the state to regulate the, that economy. That's what shifted, I think. Uh, by the time you get to the 1980s and 90s, the faith, you might say, in, this, in the state to be able to, A, regulate the economy successfully to, to manage the business cycle successfully, but also to create social justice in the presence of economic growth just it didn't seem to be happening. And we can talk more about this, but in the 1970s, because economic growth essentially stopped or greatly slowed down in many countries, the, the old faith that people had that the state could manage this, this dual objective of, of, of economic growth plus social justice really was, was shaken. And so that opened the door for people like Margaret Thatcher and others to say, actually, it's not the role of the state um, to, to manage the economy in this way, that the best outcomes, the most positive outcomes, and she would even argue the most socially just outcomes, uh, well, it would actually come from, from freer markets. So that's fundamentally the shift. It's, it's from the skepticism about uh, the free market towards almost a faith in the free market, and certainly for those people that promoted it, it was a faith in the free market, and a much greater skepticism, again, reversing the equation, a much greater skepticism that the state could actually play positive, beneficial, and ultimately... Um, ultimately beneficial roles in the economy. 
You're listening to an interview with Professor Jonathan Swartz of Purdue University about his new book, Constructing Neoliberalism, Economic Transformation in Anglo-American Democracies. The book discusses the introduction of neoliberal policies in four countries, Britain, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. Now, in your book, Constructing Neoliberalism, you discuss the various uh, economic crises that arose during the 1970s. What were those economic crises, and, and to what extent were the new neoliberal policies a response to them? Essentially, the crises that these four countries faced were similar to what the world, you know, most countries in the world experienced during the 1970s. Um, essentially, in a nutshell, what happened was that in the course of the 1970s, in, in large part because of the world oil shock in 1973, which was then compounded in 1979, uh, combined with a host of other factors, but th- that whole period was one in which what you saw was that the prosperity and the success that many countries had seen in the 1950s and 60s, especially rebuilding from the war, uh, and, and you're seeing the growth of, uh, of a real consumer economy and the growth of, of markets around the world, and especially economic growth in these countries, had really slowed down. And so what we see in all four countries is that by the late 70s or by the early 1980s, growth had slowed dramatically. Unemployment was starting to, to go up significantly. Um, to just to take one example, in New Zealand, by 1984, unemployment had hit 5.7%. Well, 5.7% might not seem like much today, but if one considers that New Zealand had been an essentially full employment economy, that literally the number of unemployed people in New Zealand had been counted in the hundreds in the, in the early 1970s or late 1960s, 5.7% seemed completely unbelievable. When, the, when unemployment passed the 1 million mark in the early 1970s in Britain, that psychological barrier uh, had a tremendous effect on, on people's views of what was happening in the economy. And so it was really the slowdown of growth, uh, and I've got some data in the book that show uh, the extent to which growth in these four economies really slowed uh, over the course of the 1970s. Uh, In the case of New Zealand, actually shrunk. Um, The extent to which unemployment and, of course, inflation was coupled with unemployment, the so-called stagflation, um, took place in countries like Britain. You had a real rise in union militancy, and you had, um, for example, in 1972 and 1974, you had miners' strikes that had Britain on a three-day week because uh, coal stocks were so low and electricity you know, production had to be curtailed, uh, so the country is only on a three-day working week. I mean, there was just this sense over the course of this period in somewhat, at a somewhat different timing uh, in the four countries, but still this sense that things had to change, that the, the, the way we had been going in the past, the success we'd had in the past was just not obtaining in today's world. And that really opened the door for people like Margaret Thatcher or um, or Paul Keating or Bob Hawke or Roger Douglas to say, um, the reason we're having this problem is because the economic policies we followed in the past are no longer tenable. Um, and that really gave the opportunity for these norm entrepreneurs to make that argument uh, in a way um, that, with which, of course, they ultimately found success. Uh, now, just to be clear here, you're saying that the neoliberal arguments are part of a new imaginary, uh, a political economic imaginary, and, and there's nothing innately true about them necessarily. They're, they're a way of seeing things. To what extent, then, were these norm entrepreneurs, as you call them, in these countries, able to um, use these crises to impose, if you will, a completely new imaginary that is not necessarily grounded in, say, hard economic facts? Well, I guess what I would say, just to preface that, is that whether it's true or not, whether there is economic facts behind it, is a somewhat separate issue. And that's, the I think, the important point I, I would want to make on that. And that is that perhaps for certain purposes, neoliberalism does have an awful lot of evidence going for it. So, for example, if what you want is economic efficiency, then, yeah, free markets do seem to produce economic efficiency. So, um, you know, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that it's completely unfounded. It, I think it more depends on what the goals of one society are. If the goals of one society is, is, is economic efficiency, then perhaps... Under certain conditions, you know, neoliberalism can produce that for you. What I've focused more on is is not trying to assess kind of the validity or the invalidity or the truthfulness or the falsehood of, of neoliberalism, but rather the argument that was made for it. And to, so, to get to your point, to get to your question, the way it was framed was essentially that the old ways have failed, 
And in the absence of any other alternative, this is the way forward. This is the so-called Tina argument. There is no alternative. And in fact, people like Margaret Thatcher explicitly said this. There is no alternative. The alternative has been tried. Now, again, whether that was true or not, or whether that's an actually accurate statement or not, you know, that's contestable, and it was contested. But because the 1970s and some countries during the 1980s had seen such economic turmoil, and because by the admission of the Keynesians themselves, by the people that had been running things in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because they seemed to struggle by their own admission with trying to figure out uh, what to do. With, when, you know, the, the whole notion that you have unemployment and inflation rising simultaneously seemed to challenge you know, the traditional notion that the two were, were, two were opposite phenomenon. Um, this really opened the door for them to say, there's no other way. The reason we've had this problem the reason we're having these problems is because we followed what that you would have called socialism. We followed these policies of state intervention. We followed these policies of the government owning big swaths of the economy. The solution, she argued, the alternative is to try this radically new concept. And, and in a sense, it wasn't new, of course, because it was a restatement of what had been said you know, a couple centuries before by people like Smith. But it was new in that context, you might say. It was really it was trying to change people's views. And frankly, there didn't seem to be an alternative, and the opposition didn't do very well of expressing an alternative. And I've got a few quotes in the book about this, where people on, uh, people on the other side of the argument were basically saying, wait a second, um, you, you know, you, you've, you've cornered us kind of on this point. You say there's no alternative, but there is an alternative, but yet by their own admission, they weren't, uh, they weren't articulating that alternative very well. Uh, and what that alternative was was not entirely clear. And so the, the, the weakness, you might say, or the inability of the opposition really to mount an effective challenge to neoliberalism, theoretically or conceptually, um, really played into the hands of these normal entrepreneurs. You're listening to an interview with Professor Jonathan Swartz of Purdue University about his new book, Constructing Neoliberalism, Economic Transformation in Anglo-American Democracies. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. In your book, you note that uh, political leaders used persuasion as one strategy to push for neoliberal policies, but you add that they also used what you call rhetorical coercion. How does persuasion differ from rhetorical coercion? Well, the idea of of persuasion, of rhetorical persuasion, is basically based on the work of people like Habermas. And it's it's the notion that when you try to persuade someone... What you're doing is you're essentially trying to convince them that something is good or right or desirable. So, for example, uh, I might argue, too, that slavery is wrong. It's just it's wrong and we should do it. We shouldn't do it and we should change the laws on it and we should abolish it. We should outlaw it or landmines, for instance, if you see it, the, the you know, the there's been a real shift in terms of attitudes toward landmines over the course of the last 20 years or so. Well, a lot of that was based on persuasion. It was based on norm entrepreneurs, people in NGOs and other organizations and some politicians saying they're wrong. They're, they're, they produce these terrible results, and so we shouldn't do them. They're just wrong. And that's persuasion. There has, however, been an argument, and this is based on the work of people like Krebs and Jackson, who argue that actually there's something called rhetorical coercion that can also happen. Coercion, rhetorically, is when essentially you manipulate your opponent, if you will, your rhetorical opponent, into a position where he or she doesn't have an answer, where you essentially maneuver them onto a rhetorical or philosophical position where they no longer have a good answer. So this kind of ties back to what I was just mentioning before about there being no alternative. Uh, a, a good example of this, I think, was the civil rights movement in the United States. Uh, the civil rights activists in the United States in the 1950s and 60s were very successful, I think, in, in, in moving opponents of civil rights into a corner rhetorically. So basically what they would say is, well, do you believe that America is a country of, of, of freedom? And people would say yes. Do you believe in freedom? Do you believe that people should be free? This is a country based on the concepts of freedom and dignity and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the rest of it. And people would say yes. And, and, and then the civil rights activists would say, well, then how do you square that with not allowing people to vote? How do you, you, know, how do you square that with denying African-Americans fundamental political and civil liberties? Well, there's no good answer to that. If, if, you, if you buy into the premise that this should be a country of, of liberty and, and political and civil freedoms, then how can you really justify the denial of that to a huge chunk of the population? Well, it's hard to do. It's, it's really difficult to do. That's essentially what I argue happened at the hands of the norm entrepreneurs with respect to neoliberalism. 
So persuasion would be to say, well, neoliberalism is good, it's desirable, it's something we want to do. But coercion is taking it a step farther and say, there's no alternative. What is the alternative? I quote Bob Hawke in the book who said, you know, people who are against what in Australia was called economic rationalism, that was their term for neoliberalism, people that are against economic rationalism, what are they for? Economic irrationalism? Well, in a sense, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a cliche. It's a throwaway line. But the point was, if you're not in favor of this, then, then what do you want? You know, what is the alternative to it? And because the opposition was not very successful in coming up with an alternative, they were essentially maneuvered rhetorically into a position uh, where they didn't have a very good answer. I've got, I'll just briefly mention one quote that I do have in the book that, that speaks to this directly. Uh, it was actually a minister in New Zealand, in, in, in the Labour government there, but one who was not really in favor of the changes that took place in New Zealand, the neoliberal changes there. And he said, there was no substantial theoretical basis on which you could sustain opposition to economic rationalism because there had never been anything like it. They'd say there is no alternative. And you'd say, well, there is. They would reply, oh, that's the old way. We used to do that. You can't do that anymore. And then when you looked at what they were doing, you had to devise a theory according to them to combat what they were actually doing now. And they would say, oh, forget about that. that's the way we used to do it. That's the old way. That was all cloth cap socialism and so on and so on. And so he said there was essentially no way of developing, or not that there was no way, but he, the, his side of politics, if you will, his side of the ideological argument, didn't develop an alternative uh, and, and, and didn't have an alternative to hand because the alternative they were presenting was a continuation of the old policies, which the neoliberal norm entrepreneurs said are untenable. So rhetorical coercion is this kind of pulling of the rhetorical rug out from someone by maneuvering them into kind of a, a corner philosophically where there's no good response. Yes, so we have rhetorical persuasion and rhetorical coercion being used to push neoliberalism, but you also write about material persuasion and material coercion as well. Uh, how did that work? Well, material persuasion is essentially the argument that these changes will be good for you. So uh, you'll have more pay, you'll have a better lifestyle. We, there may be pain in the short run with neoliberalism, but in the long run, you're going to be better off for it. That would be material persuasion, as I call it. So it's material because it's based on your material well-being, but it's persuasion. It's, it's based on a, a positive, if you will, argument uh, for the change. So you're going to be better off as a result of this. But what I also argue is that definitely took place. I mean, the, the neoliberals were definitely arguing that you will be better off as a result of this. There may be pain in the short run. It may be difficult. It's a bitter pill that we have to swallow. But Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, Roger Douglas, all these people were arguing, for example, in Australia and New Zealand, we, you know, we're going down the drain internationally, whether that was true or not is another point, but we're going down the drain internationally. This will save us. This will, this will pull us out of the, of the hole we're in. We'll be better off as a result. That's material persuasion. But I also argue that material coercion took place. And what I mean by that basically is force. So there were times at which the neoliberals actually passed laws, for example, that forced people into an acquiescence, if you will, to neoliberalism. And the great example of this, and I've got a chapter on it, is labor market policy. So the deregulation of uh, the labor markets, for example, most dramatically in Britain and in New Zealand. We're basically legislating neoliberalism and basically um, putting unions in a position where the closed shop was ended in these countries, where basically unions were extremely restricted in terms of what they could legally do and not do. Strikes were really restricted in terms of the legal basis for strikes. Uh, unions were made susceptible to civil damages. Um, democracy was forced on the unions, in intra-union democracy, where you know ballots would have to be called before strikes and things like this. Well, that's, ma that's material coercion. That's actually putting a legal basis uh, to the changes you're trying to do. And so what I also talk about in the book is that there's an interesting dynamic, I think, because the two actually interact with, with one another. One may be forced in the short run by, by material coercion to comply with neoliberalism or neoliberal ideas. But it is possible that over time, what we may see, or what you may see, is that people actually begin to not just follow out of coercion, but actually may come to believe in the policies themselves. So, for example, in these countries, you don't see any real demand for a return of the closed shop. You don't really see any real demand for the labor market policies of the 1950s and 60s. Well, uh, maybe that's just acquiescence, but I also think to a certain extent there has been a, a conversion, if you will, at least by some people, that... Yeah, maybe we were forced into these policies in the short run, but in the longer run, we've actually come to believe in them, at least to a certain extent. 
Now, your book on constructing neoliberalism uh, studies each of the four Anglo-American democracies. And let's look at them in more detail and start with Britain, where it began with Margaret Thatcher, of course. Um, Let's play a clip of Margaret Thatcher speaking to the Conservative Party conference in Blackpool, England. This was in 1983. One of the great debates of our time is about how much of your money should be spent by the state and how much you should keep to spend on your family. Let us never forget this fundamental truth. The state has no source of money other than the money people earn themselves. If the state wishes to spend more, it can do so only by borrowing your savings or by taxing you more. And it's no good thinking that someone else will pay. That someone else is you. There is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayers' money. (laughs) A prosperity won't come by inventing more and more lavish public expenditure programs. You don't grow richer by ordering another checkbook from the bank. And no nation ever grew more prosperous by taxing its citizens beyond their capacity to pay. We have a duty to make sure that every penny piece we raise in taxation is spent wisely and well. For it is our party which is dedicated to good housekeeping. How very pleasant it would be. How very popular to say, spend more on this, expand more on that. And of course, we all have our favorite causes. I know I do. But someone has to add up the figures. Every business has to do it. Every housewife has to do it. Every government should do it. And this one will. So that was the Iron Lady herself, Margaret Thatcher, speaking in 1983. And I noticed she said there is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayers' money. How typical of neoliberal uh, policies, Professor Schwartz, is that line? I think it's a great line in, to illustrate neoliberalism because it essentially illustrates her fundamental point of view, which was that the market or the economy that mattered was the private economy. Uh, that was where attention should be placed. And to the extent that there was a state and there needs to be a state, it should be a state that recognizes that at the end of the day, it's all funded from and based on and dependent upon the private economy. I also think it's very interesting in that clip where uh, she talks about it's your money, essentially. And, and, and when you say that someone else is going to pay, that someone else is you. Well, I've got a quote or two in the book where uh, my, my, my interviewee said, you know, one of the things about Thatcher was that she essentially made it okay to be self-interested, if you will. She made it okay to be selfish. Uh, you know, it, usually we're taught not to be selfish, but she, but she said it's okay to look after your own self-interest. And in this particular case, uh, you should be just as careful with your money vis-a-vis the state as you are in, in other aspects of life. I like how at the end of that clip she says, you know, every business has to add up the figures. Every housewife has to do it. Every government has to do it. There was kind of this almost homespun domestic logic to it that just as we have to do this in our own lives, so the state has to, to do it as well. That Speaking of rhetorical um, coercion, I think that's a powerful argument. Um, because A powerful argument that... It, in its, because of its simplicity and because of its appeal to, to what we all have to do in our own you know, personal financial lives to, to apply that to the state. Now, whether or not it actually does apply is a whole other matter, but it has this kind of intuitive sense to it, this intuitive logic to it that she was, of course, excellent at communicating. Now, of, of the four countries you look at in uh, constructing neoliberalism, two went in a very rapid way toward the new policies. One, of course, was Margaret Thatcher in Britain. The other was New Zealand. And uh, I have a clip here of a television program that looks at the New Zealand revolution. Uh, let's just play a little clip to get a sense of how the documentary maker saw that revolution. The word revolution suggests chaos, guns, bloodshed, but there are other ways. Between 1984 and 1993, New Zealand had its own kind of revolution, one that would leave permanent changes in our culture. 
We became a laboratory for an experiment, the transformation of the world's first welfare state into the world's first post-welfare state. Around the world, gurus of market-driven economic theory watched in envy as a tiny nation in the South Pacific did an about turn and marched in a different direction. For 50 years, New Zealand had been the model of the modern welfare state. Affluent and egalitarian, famous for butter, all blacks and social ideals. We paid up to 66% in tax to sustain free health, education, housing and near full employment on the sacred 40-hour week. Hey, listen, everybody, do you realize? We got two TV channels here with crying eyes. Every time By the 80s, New Zealand was a strange animal among Western democracies. We boasted two television channels, both owned by the state, which also controlled who made the sets and for how much. What business you could be in, the prices you charged, the hours you worked, the wages you were paid, what you could buy and when, were all decided by the state. So that's a clip from a TV documentary produced in New Zealand, Revolution Part 1, Fortress New Zealand. And I see that the narrator mentioned the transformation of the world's first welfare state into the world's first post-welfare state. Professor Swartz, how accurate a statement is that? I think that's a pretty accurate statement because... What we see in New Zealand, as well as in Australia, is that in many ways, they were some of the pioneers of the modern social welfare state. I'm not, I don't, I don't know if you could say it's the first, um, but it was one of the first. There's no doubt about it, where at the turn of the 20th century, both Australia and New Zealand uh, essentially tried to insulate themselves from the rest of the world. Um, their view basically was we're small, unprotected economies in, in, in a much bigger world, and we need to defend ourselves against the vicissitudes of the world economy. And so what both countries did is erect policies that Frank Castles calls domestic defense, which is basically a set of policies designed to defend yourself against the depredations of the rest of the world. And that would mean high tariffs. It would mean strict currency controls. Um, it would mean uh, the, the creation of... of very pro-labor, pro-worker uh, policies that essentially would try to protect workers from, from world competition, uh, the creation of a generous social welfare state. Um, it was true to a very large extent, but what was also true, as that quote points out, is that New Zealand, within the course of you know, less than a decade, went from being perhaps the most regulated capitalist economy in the world to being perhaps the most deregulated economy in the world. Uh, it really was a remarkably rapid transformation, and it was led, of course, by the finance minister, Roger Douglas, who um, just, and I detail this in the book, who just essentially took what's been called the blitzkrieg approach uh, to policy change, which was essentially, by his own admission, to hit the people and to hit his opponents with so many policy changes that they couldn't possibly keep up with them all, and I've got some quotes from, from politicians from in New Zealand in that period who basically said, you know, you couldn't keep up. Uh, as soon as you were figuring out how to uh, pose Douglas on one point, he'd hit you with another. Um, and so what happened is that first under labor, and of course that's another interesting aspect of all this, is that in Australia and New Zealand, neoliberalism was led by labor parties. Uh, after labor left office, it was then succeeded by the national government in New Zealand, which then proceeded to to push neoliberalism into areas, especially labor market policy, that the Labor Party had, had not done. So, I mean, it was a remarkable transformation. Within about a decade, uh, New Zealand went from being this highly regulated economy where, um, as the clip kind of talks about, and I've got a, a quote in the book about this, you know, all the regulations on the, on the economy where you couldn't buy overseas magazines, you couldn't buy margarine, you couldn't, there were two forms of washing machines on sale, or two models of washing machine, both made to the same specifications. Uh, you know, there were all these restrictions on the economy. It went from that to being perhaps the most deregulated economy in, in the capitalist world within the course of about 10 years. So it was a remarkable transformation. You're listening to an interview with Professor Jonathan Swartz of Purdue University about his new book, Constructing Neoliberalism, Economic Transformation in Anglo-American Democracies. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. In your book, Professor Swartz, uh, you describe the Australian approach to introducing uh, neoliberal policies as a somewhat slower one than in New Zealand, which was a sort of a steamroller approach. 
How did the introduction of neoliberal policies differ in Australia from New Zealand? They differed primarily because the Prime Minister who led the neoliberal changes, the neoliberal revolution, if you will, in, in Australia, at least inaugurated them, was Bob Hawke. And Bob Hawke had been a leading trade unionist, uh, the head of the ACTU, the top union organization in Australia, prior to becoming a politician. And so his approach was one that was much more sensitive to what you might call the traditional labor base. Um, it's one of those fascinating things about Douglas in New Zealand that even though he was really the, the uh, part of a long historic labor family in New Zealand, um, he himself you know, really broke with labor tradition there. Hawke did so too, but in a way that was much more gradual, you might say, and much more attuned to traditional labor sensitivities. For example, uh, much more attuned to rights of workers, much more attuned to, to labor markets and, and labor market regulation and the interests that workers have in labor market regulation, much more attentive to working with the unions. And, and, and the main difference you see there in a nutshell was that the Australian approach under the Labour Party, it wouldn't be the approach when the Conservative coalition came in later, but the approach under the Labour Party in, in Australia was basically to work with the unions. And, to, and they came up with a series of what were known as accords, uh, agreements with the, the labor unions in Australia to essentially hold down wage demands, to essentially moderate their wage demands in return, uh, in return for more generous social welfare benefits and more generous state services. And, and Hawke's basic argument was uh, that what we need is a non-inflationary environment. What we need is wages to be held down. But then what we will do is, on the same, at the same time that we're holding down wages, and I've got a, a table in the book that shows to, to the extent that they were successful. I mean, over the entire course of the Hawke, and perhaps it was the Hawke-Keating governments, uh, real wages in Australia barely grew. Um, they were very successful in holding down wages. But at the same time, Hawke argued, what we'll do is we'll increase the so-called social wage. We'll increase the, the amounts that are being transferred in terms of child benefits or in terms of education, in terms of other social welfare benefits. And so in the end, he argued, you won't end up uh, any worse off, but what will happen is that the economy will become more competitive because wages are being held down. Well, I think you can say pretty unequivocally he was very successful in in managing those agreements uh, with the with the trade union movement in Australia. And so it's a very different model. It's one of cooperation. It's one of conciliation. The changes happened, but they did so in a way that basically got the trade unions on board in Australia. Uh, and so when you compare that to either the Blitzkrieg in New Zealand. Or when you compare that to the, you know, the completely acrimonious, bitter relations that the Thatcher government had with trade unions in Britain, the, the contrast is, is really quite traumatic. Yes, I have a clip of Bob Hawke. This is late in his career, going into the fourth election that he won. And this is the 1990 federal election in Australia, the Bob Hawke policy speech at the beginning of the campaign. Here's an excerpt from it. My friends, my fellow Australians... The message I bring you today is a message of confidence in the future of Australia and a renewed commitment to a better and a fairer future for all Australians. It's a message based firmly on realism, the realism and substance of our policies for the future, the fact that the tough and the hard decisions we've had to make for the good of Australia are starting to work. The fact that we are building together a nation of opportunity, fairness and security and above all based on the strength of the Australian people. My friends, I know that we have had to take hard and unpopular decisions for difficult times. I know, I understand completely that those decisions have been tough for many decent hard-working Australians. But I also know that I would not be fit to lead this great country if I had chosen the easy, popular way at the cost of the nation's future. And anyone, however glib or smooth, who tells the people of Australia that the future of this country lies at the end of an easy road is not fit to be your Prime Minister. So that was Bob Hawke speaking in 1990, the Australian election campaign that he won as Prime Minister. And I noticed the language in that excerpt, uh, language like, well, the tough and the hard decisions, hard and unpopular decisions for difficult times, even uh, tough for many decent, hardworking Australians. 
And he says, I'm not going to take the easy, popular way. And yet, his success, his repeated success, suggests, in fact, that his policies were popular enough, at least for him to win time after time at the polls. I mean, if he's right about tough decisions and that working people might suffer, um, how was he able to prevail so many times, Professor Swartz? Well, I think that's a great question, and that really gets to... um what I think is one of the fascinating things about this whole period. And let me just discuss Australia and Hawk briefly and then mention the other cases as well, because I think it really applies to the others. If we look at Hawk specifically, um, I think that it shows the extent to which he personally was successful in communicating this message that, look, I'm a man of the Labour Party. I'm a man of the Labour movement. You can trust me. You can trust this government. Of course, Hawk has this very likable uh, kind of personality. He has this this image of kind of the the ordinary guy um, who's everybody's buddy, somebody that you could definitely have a beer with. Um, and so he has this kind of genial, warm personality that I think successfully communicated the idea, you can trust me, you can trust this government, and we have to do these things. We might not want to do these things, but we have to. The world is forcing us to do them. Again, whether that's true or not is another matter. But the world is forcing us to do this. The, the demands of the world economy of competitiveness are forcing us to hold down wages, to do the other things we're doing. But we're doing it with the right intentions. We're doing it with social justice in mind. He even mentioned, I think, fairness in that clip and opportunity. So he's always keen to emphasize that at the end of the day, we're doing all this in the service of social justice. Now, again, whether you buy that or not, or whether you, you, you think that's sincere or not, I think you'd have to say that as a rhetorical device, it, it worked. Speaking more generally, however, though, I think it's a great question to say, you know, on the one hand, you look at neoliberalism and you say th th these bitter pills that everyone had to swallow in these countries and, 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 the, and the unemployment that it caused, for example, in Britain or the decimation of the trade unions there or the, just the turning of uh, New Zealand on its head in many ways economically, you say, well, th these must be so unpopular that in democratic societies, these governments must have just been chucked out at the next election. And, and the reality was quite different. I mean, you know, Thatcher gets reelected numerous times, as you mentioned, Hawks reelected numerous times, uh, which you have. And then in New Zealand, you have a couple of labor governments that are then succeeded by national governments that then take the policies even farther and they get reelected. So you say to yourself, well, if these policies are so unpopular and if they're so, um, you know, if ordinary, if they're so detrimental to the interests of ordinary people, then why is it that these governments keep getting elected? And I think the classic example of this is British Labour, where the British Labour Party in 1983, their first election in which they, 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 they ran against Thatcher as prime minister, you know, after four years of the Thatcher government, um, they ran on a very left-wing program. They took kind of that detour to the left with, uh, with that very left-wing ma manifesto they had in 1983 under Michael Foote's leadership, and they were just decimated at the polls. And, and so what you see then, now you might argue there were other factors involved, the Falklands and, and other issues like that, but what you see is that it, how long did it take the Labour Party to get back into power? It wasn't until 1997, 14 years later. Uh, and and it, after the party had gone through a wrenching process uh, of basically reorienting itself, where? Largely on the ground that had been prepared for it by Thatcher. And so by the time you get to Tony Blair in 1997, you have the Labour Party essentially not changing any of the fundamental uh, policies that had been implemented by the Thatcher and the major governments. And, and, and it wins with this resounding, overwhelming uh, landslide victory in 1997. So there is this, this strange phenomenon, you might say, where on the one hand, Neoliberalism has never been popular. Public opinion, poll after public opinion shows, shows these policies to be very unpopular. But yet, governments not only get reelected, but oppositions, like the British Labour Party, feel that they have to move onto that ground in order to be considered credible by the public. To me, this would just be my personal interpretation, that shows the extent to which the public themselves, whether they, whether they want to or not, have essentially adopted the fundamental assumptions of neoliberalism. So that even though they don't like these policies, and even though they get really upset at the governments that implement them, a party like the British Labour Party has to adopt them in order to be considered economically credible. And then when they get in power, they do virtually nothing to reverse any of those policies. To me, that shows the extent to which this is that neoliberalism has not only been an elite phenomenon by political leaders, but has also, uh, if you will, insinuated itself or has been um, has been picked up on by the values, the, the, the ideas, the norms of, of ordinary citizens. 
Uh, and to me, that's where you really see the, the success of the neoliberal imaginary is the extent to which now it would appear that ordinary voters believe that these policies are necessary, undesirable, maybe difficult, but, but necessary nonetheless. And that when parties have gone in the opposite direction and, and argued for radically different policies, they haven't been successful. Uh, to me, that's one of the great fascinating things about, about neoliberalism. Well, so far we've talked about the introduction of neoliberal policies in Britain, New Zealand, and Australia. But uh, when we turn to Canada, an interesting case there, as you point out in your book, neoliberalism was advanced in Canada by the Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and, and one of his main policies was free trade with the United States, an eternally contentious issue in Canadian politics. Uh, Mulroney actually came into office against free trade. He denounced it and and said it would lead to economic subservience to the United States. But once in office in 1984, he pursued it. And then by the 1988 election, uh, with the free trade agreement in place, he was under attack from his main opposition, Liberal John Turner. And I'll play this clip from the TV debate, the 1988 federal election TV debate, in which Turner accuses Mulroney of selling out the country. And you can hear how divisive the free trade issue really was. I happen to believe that you've sold us out. I happen to believe that once you... Mr. And Turner, just, 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 just one, one second. second. Once any you nation, do not, you do not have a monopoly what? on patriotism. What? What? And I resent what? the fact that your implication, that only you are a Canadian. I, I want to tell you that once, I come from a Canadian once, family and once, I love Canada. Once, and that's any, why I did it, to promote prosperity. Country, and don't you impugn my motives. Once Don't a country you my yields or anyone else's. Once a country yields its its energy. We have not Once done Once a it. country yields its agriculture. Wrong Once again. a country opens itself up to a subsidy war with the United States Wrong on again. terms of definition, then the political ability you, of this country to sustain the influence of the United States to remain as an Mr. independent nation, that Mr. is lost Turner, forever. Mr. And Turner, that's the issue of this election. Mr. Sir. Turner, I today, sir, as a Canadian, believe genuinely in what I am doing, I believe it is right for Canada. I believe that in my own modest way, I am nation building because I believe this benefits Canada and I love Canada. We built a country, east and west and north. We built it on an infrastructure that deliberately resisted the continental pressure of the United States. For 120 years, we've done it. With one signature of a pen, you've reversed that thrown us into the north-south influence of the United States With and will reduce us, will reduce us, I'm sure, to a colony of the United States because when the economic levers go, the political independence is sure to follow. Mr. Turner, with a document that's cancelable on six months' notice, be serious. Look, be can serious. Cancelable. You're talking about our relationship with the United States. Once that a commercial docu document that's cancelable that, on six months' notice. Commercial document. That, is that what document it is. It is relates a to treaty. It relates to every facet of our life. It it's is far treaty. more important Mr. to us than it is to the United Mr. States. Sir. Far be, more important. Please be serious. Well, I am serious. I have never been more serious yeah, in my life. Please. Uh, so that, Professor Schwartz, was a fairly lively clip from the 1988 Canadian election TV debate with Brian Mulroney defending his free trade policy against the onslaught there of the Liberal leader, John Turner. Of course, Mulroney did win that election. So how did this whole thing play out in terms of Canada moving on to the neoliberal bandwagon? Oh, that's a great clip that I think really illustrates... Uh in quite stark fashion, the two very different views of what Canadian trade policy should be with Turner essentially arguing, you know, we've had 120 years of history. And, and as I talk about in the book, this had been, of course, the, the, the standard, the standard Canadian policy towards the United States was that there was no way that a country like Canada uh, could possibly defend itself in the world economy vis-a-vis -vis the United States without protection. And that an idea like free trade I've got a number of interview quotes in the book that from people of the 1960s and 70s saying, you know, when the issue would come up in the 1960s and 70s, it was almost laughable. Uh, if you brought up the issue of free trade within the cabinet of the party room, you were thought of as some kind of a kook uh, because it just simply went against the, you know, the, the longstanding tradition of protectionism or economic nationalism in Canadian political life. And, and so for Mulroney to come and, and argue the opposite which, as you pointed out in your question, even he himself had been against free trade in his early days. But then, of course, over the course of those years in government, he, he basically, well, very quickly shifted. And by 1988, had concluded the free trade agreement with the United States. He came to a very different view. Um, 
And so what you see there, I, I think, as I said, in, in stark contrast, is is that is that total transformation of the of the attitude toward the United States and whether or not this should be free trade. Of course, then what happens, and, and for me this is always the fascinating part, is that, as you said, that 1988 election was basically run on the issue of free trade. Mulroney and the conservatives win that, that election. That essentially settles the issue of free trade. Um, certainly from their point of view or from their, from their argument, that was essentially a referendum on the issue. And so for, for them, that was taken as a mandate to, uh, to proceed with and to, and to you know, finally consummate the agreement. Um, but then what happened, of course, is that then uh, the, government can, the, the government then proceeded to start negotiating NAFTA with, with the United States and Mexico, uh, which, again, initially the liberals... Uh, opposed and, and Jean Chrétien, the new leader, opposed. But then, by, by the time it comes to the time to actually promulgate uh, NAFTA in uh, 1994, I believe he's actually uh, he's actually doing it himself. And, and, and even though he had promised to potentially tear up NAFTA if it was detrimental to Canadian interests, he becomes, of course, a big promoter of international trade and of NAFTA itself. Uh, and and again, I think you see a very similar. I think you see a very similar phenomenon in Canada on the issue of free trade as you see in the other countries where, I mean, imagine in Canada today, if you were to go around and propose uh, returning to the protectionist policy of the 1960s or 70s in Canada, I don't think you'd get, you know, much support for that. I think most people would think that for better or worse, and probably in some ways it's been better, in some ways it's been worse, free trade is here. And that's just the way, whether we like it or not, that's the way the world works. And, and again, whether that's true or not is, is, is another matter. But I think public opinion has moved substantially on that point. And, and there's, there's no real uh, argument either at the elite level or at the, at the mass level for a return to protectionism in Canada any more than there is um, for changes in the other countries to go back to the way the things were of the 60s and 70s. And again, for me, that's, uh, that's the evidence, if you will, or that's the a sign of the extent to which the ideological or the philosophical ground really has shifted. Professor Schwartz, I just want to ask you one last thing that it's not really a theme in your book. You don't deal with it there. But I just wonder about your take on it. Um, those on the left uh, would argue that neoliberalism really represented an empowering of multinational corporations, including the free trade part of that. And if you don't mind, I'll just ask you to what extent would you share that analysis or how do you think it's flawed? I would say that you're right. It's not something that I that I analyze directly. So so I think that one of the things you could say about the book, where it's if you wanted to add like an important piece of the puzzle that I just didn't have the the time or the ability really to to get into, was the extent to which neoliberalism was supported by corporations and by the business lobby. And I think in general, what you see is that that's true. It largely was. I mean, not surprisingly. Um, and in some countries, for example, in New Zealand, uh, the business lobby was extremely supportive and provided critical support, uh, especially to the national government there in the extreme labor market changes that they promoted. Uh, so I guess I would say as looking at it from a political point of view, to, were the, was the business lobby or were corporations important in in driving the, 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 the process of neoliberalism. I don't know if I'd want to use the word driving, but I think I would say they were certainly important in providing some very critical support to it. Now, I think your question was more along the lines of, do I think that the analysis that this has empowered corporations is an accurate one? I think to a large extent it does. Uh, neoliberalism ultimately rests on this notion that entrepreneurs, and that would include not only individuals but corporations, that entrepreneurs are good for the society, they're good for the state, they're good for the economy, that what you want are healthy entrepreneurs, healthy corporations, uh, taking these risks and, and making the country productive and, and, and producing economic growth. And so, um, absolutely, I would think that if you look at the positions of, of corporations in these countries today, vis-a-vis -vis where they were, let's say, in the 1950s or 60s, um, certainly the, the, the shackles, if you will, of regulation have been taken off. I think of New Zealand being the extreme case that I mentioned earlier. And so are corporations there today uh, much freer and much more powerful than they were in the past? I think you can certainly say they're freer uh, and probably as a result much more powerful. You've been listening to an interview with Jonathan Swartz, the author of Constructing Neoliberalism, Economic Transformation in Anglo-American Democracies. He's an associate professor of political science at Purdue University, North Central. In addition to this book, Professor Swartz has written on issues of migration, particularly in Greece.
He's currently working on a book project that will examine U.S. policy toward the military regime in Greece from 1967 to 1974. We would like to thank Professor Naovi M. Karakatsanis, whose technical assistance made this interview possible. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.